His handsome features and well-proportioned body hold promise, but he possesses neither the talent nor the discipline to become a star. Edwin fears that his brother will dilute the family name and that two booths on the same circuit will cut into his profits, even though he is by far the better known. He has power to wield, however, so he divides the United States into two regions. Each brother would perform in his own region, never crossing into the other's territory. Edwin takes the populous north, including New York City, Boston, and Philadelphia, while John Wilkes is relegated to the less populous south, where audiences and profits are much smaller. John Wilkes begins his first southern tour in 1860, as the country itself is dividing along the same lines as his brother's map. Toiling in the south, John Wilkes begins to sympathize with the Confederate cause, increasing tensions with his Union-loving family. After performing in New Orleans, where he meets up with members of the Confederate Secret Service, John Wilkes finally finds his chance for stardom by joining the conspiracy to kidnap President Lincoln. His decision, Titone persuasively argues, is forged as much by his failed career, his squandered earnings, and his jealousy of his brother's success, as by his politics or his hatred for Lincoln. In short, This book forces us to look at the familiar story of Lincoln's assassin in a new way, through the lens of his tangled family history. Moreover, by placing Edwin Booth at center stage, it brings back to vivid life a fascinating figure whose achievements have been obscured by his brother's murderous deed. We see Edwin performing before President Lincoln, dining with Secretary of State William Seward, befriending Julia Ward Howe and Adam Badeau, General Grant's aide-de-camp. We learn that no other actor in the golden age of 19th century theater was ever held in higher esteem. Still, as Titone appreciates, through a final desperate performance, John Wilkes Booth accomplished by death what he had never been able to achieve in life. He finally upstaged his brother. Doris Kearns Goodwin, April 29, 2010, Concord, Massachusetts. Prologue The Players All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. As You Like It, Act Two, Scene Seven On the last day of 1892, a tempest hit Manhattan. A heavy, day-long downpour filled the avenues of the city with ankle-deep water. Fifty-mile-an-hour winds tore umbrellas inside out, chased pedestrians off the streets, and hurled gusts of rain against roof and window. This weather kept most people home for New Year's Eve, but three hours before midnight, a coach carrying the President-elect of the United States started southward, directly into the path of the storm. It was not an easy journey. For forty-five blocks the driver had to urge his balking horses to bring the President to his destination. Only a serious commitment would call a person out in a gale like this one, particularly Grover Cleveland, a good-natured but torpid man who generally avoided physical exertion. Yet tonight he dressed in a white tie and black evening coat, left the comfort of his mansion on East 68th Street, and set forth on the wet and blustery drive without complaint. He was going to a party to give a speech in honor of the actor Edwin Booth. Paying tribute to an actor would be a delicate mission for any president at the close of the 19th century. Most stage stars, no matter how popular, were social outcasts. As a guardian of New York's high society once explained, acting, 
like other forms of money-making artistic work, was scorned by the 19th-century ruling classes as something between a black art and a form of manual labor. Adding to the difficulty of Cleveland's task was that, over the past half-century, perhaps no name had been at once more beloved and more reviled by the American people than that of Booth. On an earlier occasion, John Hay, who had lived and worked with Abraham Lincoln in the White House and was like a son to the martyred president, chose to send his speech honoring Edwin Booth by mail. General William T. Sherman, hero of the Grand Army of the Republic and an enthusiastic admirer of Edwin Booth, would be present at tonight's party but would not address the crowd. Cleveland agreed to deliver the night's keynote, encouraged perhaps by the official limbo he found himself in this season. By a strange twist of timing, Cleveland was president tonight, and yet he was not. The only